One of the biggest differences between mediation and other forms of litigation is that it actually puts control of the outcome in the hands of the parties and not in the hands of either a judge or a jury or the attorneys. And that's very important. Uh, people feel better about decisions they can help make. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Good morning, everybody. This is Trisha Baxter. Welcome back to another episode of The Defense Never Rest. Today, we are talking mediation, how to make it a, an effective tool for resolution. Um, and with me today are the two best mediators that I could find. And they are, is that, is that a good intro? Two best okay. mediators that exist. Exist. Okay, exactly. sorry. All right, yeah. I got corrected. Um, mm-hmm. But before I get to their introductions, joining me for another time as my co-host, Oliver Brooks. Hey, Oliver, how are good you? Morning. So first up is our first guest, had been mediating cases for over 25 years prior to becoming a mediator. She was in private practice on both the plaintiff and defendant side for over 15 years. Huge supporter of the community I saw and mother of three adult children. Welcome, Barbara Lyons. Thank you. Happy to be here. So happy that you're here. Thank you. Our next guest is the newly elected chancellor of the Philadelphia Bar Association, distinguished mediator, grandfather of five, and retired judge, Judge Michael Snyder. Welcome and congrats on the new appointment. Thank you so much, Trish. I am just delighted to be here. Thank you, Barbara. Congratulations. Uh, It's got to be one of the neatest things that's ever happened to me. Can I, can I, do I have to call you judge? You can call me anything you want. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. (laughs) Mike is fine also. Okay. I, it's a habit of mine. I can't. It's going to be judge. All. all That's okay. Uh, I just can't. That's I can't okay. break that habit. But um, all right. So let's dive in. This is all about mediation. We, as defense counsel and our clients, always try to figure out how to make mediation the most effective tool for us. So that's kind of what we're going to get into today. Before we do that, let's for those people that may not be using mediation, describe briefly what it is and what the benefits are. And I'll, I'll throw this to you, Barbara. Okay. Um, mediation is the, the tool that lawyers who are litigating a matter, civil matters, can use to resolve the case before you have to go or uh, to avoid litigation. Litigation is expensive and it's fickle. And, uh, and if you can get the results before you have to go through all that and spend that money and, and rely on uh, 12 or 8 jurors or a cranky judge, no offense. None um, of us are there's cranky. no such thing as a cranky judge. Yeah, you can, <laughs> Just you can, some who may not have a great moment. Yeah, if you can keep control of the the outcome of the case, that's the best. That's the best remedy and the best way to go. Yeah. What about you, Judge? What What are your thoughts on that? I I think that Barbara is absolutely right. I think that one of the biggest differences between mediation and other forms of litigation is that it actually puts control of the outcome in the hands of the parties and not in the hands of either a judge or a jury or the attorneys. And that's very important. Uh, People feel better about decisions they can help make. Yeah, I agree. And for those who have not gone through mediation, it's essentially the parties both defendants and plaintiffs coming into one office, maybe separated into different rooms, and the mediator, you have maybe have an opening, maybe you don't, we'll talk about that, uh, and then mediator goes back and forth and see if they can close the gap. And exactly. it's, you know, we use it a lot, and I think, you know, it's not nothing new, I think it's been pretty popular for 20 some years, but yeah. um, we use it almost probably, I don't have the analytics on it, but I would venture to guess at least 70% of our cases mediate, because uh, it is Good. such an effective way to resolve cases. Um, all right, so let's get into some of the procedural part. Okay. How important are opening statements? Do you find them generally useful? Are there negative sides to them? What are your thoughts on that? Um, if I'm going to talk first if I can on that. I honestly think that, that opening statements are probably 
less useful than the attorneys think. Uh, I think that the, the statements that are made are most effective when they're made without the parties in the room as to that because oftentimes the opening statement is phrased in a way of expressing the strengths of a case, uh, which also may mean that they're expressing the negatives of the other side's case. And I find that that's unsuccessful when done in the presence of the actual litigants themselves. Uh, I find that for me what becomes more effective is having a process explained to them and to the clients particularly by me and then giving the attorneys that opportunity to talk in a non-opening statement fashion really in a smaller grouping. What about you? What do you what's your take on it? I think opening statements by attorneys are not helpful yeah. because I have everybody in the same room to right. start yeah. and I invite them if they want to say something to say something. If an attorney is going to say anything at all, yeah. it would be a well-placed, sincere uh, apology Absolutely. for how that you're in this situation. Sorry about that, mm -hmm. but we're here to resolve the case in good faith, and I know we all have to work to do that. An attorney who says that, whether they're plaintiff or defendant, mm -hmm. goes a long way Absolutely. to setting the tone, setting up the uh, setting up the the whole uh, mediation process. I by the time everybody gets to the room. I'm an expert on the case. They've sent me everything they want me exactly. to know about the case, so they don't have to go into the bits and pieces of their defense now, mm -hmm. in uh, or or uh, prosecution. Now, separately in the mm -hmm. rooms, I'll hear all again all about their cases, but um, not to do that in front of the parties. I agree, and, and I think it's particularly damaging when that's done in front of the parties, where mm -hmm. perhaps maybe let's say in a personal injury case where the defense attorney is not just expressing the difficulties liability-wise in the case, but perhaps their opinions relative to the nature of the injuries. Mm -hmm. And if there is a way guaranteed to destroy the dynamic that you're trying to create in the room, it's that. Yeah. And, and I struggle with this. Yeah. So I think I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've gone into mediations with an opening statement, not in the traditional like right. courtroom opening right. statement, where I've done the empathetic apologies and sometimes I've taken it further and it's done well and sometimes it hasn't and I think lawyers just can't get out of their own way they can't yes. they just feel like they have to can't talk stop yourself yep. they can. can't and I find myself guilty yep. of that too because it's my one chance to be in a room where I can talk to the plaintiff directly and I in the human side of me wants them to know my position and I know now I think with years I do list the less and less I know now that's actually not helpful so yeah. uh, I struggle with it and mm -hmm. I still see attorneys that take very cross-examining kind of yeah. approaches what do you think of this um, I've been in a lot of me mediations late, lately where the plaintiff counsel has their opening statement because the person they're talking to is sophisticated right they're talking to a defendant or a claims adjuster VP that they think can handle that adversarial push. And then I've had the mediator say to me, don't say anything. So plaintiff's counsel when, gets his day, yeah. but we don't. That's, I would that's never what tell happened to me that. last time we did really? a big mediation. Yeah. I, I don't like seeing that at all. I think that I agree with you, Barbara, that I think it sets up a bad dynamic. Yeah. It, it creates that sense from the beginning, number one, that there is a feeling that one side's being given an advantage, the other is not. Uh, it may uh, infuriate a client on the defense side, an adjuster or whatever. Uh, I think that it, it, there is just no advantage to doing that at all. I can't see why someone would do that. If someone does do that, yeah. you use it. Yeah. You use it to you know, 
right. to some advantage going going forward in, in, exactly. the, in the hour. Yeah, like how, how off the cuff can you think of an example of how you would use that? All right, um, the plaintiff's attorney just really ticked off the adjuster, yeah. right? So the adjuster and her, her attorney go back in the room, and I said, he seems to be really dogged about getting under your skin. Don't let him do that. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. her. Exactly. Don't let her Absolutely. do that to right. you. You know your case, then you, 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 you proceed accordingly. But at the same time, I will not tell attorney not to open if he or she wants to do that. I, like I said, I invite them. I tell them up front, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared. You don't have to say anything, but if you do, if you but, want to, you may. But whatever they say can be useful one way or another. And, and that's exactly what, what our mediator in our bigger case did. She said, you, you're, you're going to have a, an opportunity <laughs> to, to give a response. I recommend that you don't do that. Yeah. This guy is showboating for his client. Mm-hmm. Well. He uh, is going to get nasty with you. And unless your client is taking great offense to this, which means you haven't prepared them for this, I would recommend maybe you just say, we rest on our submissions. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what we, we, we did, and it worked out You're very well. What I also do is that I start off by explaining the process. And I explain the process as if I am speaking to the clients themselves, to the individual plaintiff and defendant. The reality is that I'm not always going to have had an opportunity to work with the attorneys or the adjuster in the room. So this provides them an explanation of the way I like the process to run without them having to feel embarrassed at being unfamiliar with it. So in doing so, I kind of script the way it goes. And I explain then that the first thing I will do when I'm done talking is have a brief conversation with the plaintiff, an informal conversation. I'll afford that same conversation to the defendant, but generally do that privately because I think that that conversation is often different. Then I excuse the plaintiff. Then I'll allow the attorneys to at least give me briefly the strong points of their case and then separate them and proceed from there. Uh, When I've had that situation of the attorney that is trying to showboat, at my next opportunity to talk to them privately, I'll indicate to them that I think that that's not terribly successful. They should try and stay away from it. I also imp- I believe the opening comments by the media are crucial, yeah. very important, and it should be done in every situation. Yeah. So when you're giving the opening comments, have you, and you're doing it in the in the first session where all of the parties are in the same right. room. Yeah. Typically your, the only time yeah. they're in the same room. Okay. Yeah, for me, that's true. Unle- until, we, until, we, until we get finished. Right, right yeah. exactly. Is that the first time that you, that's your first exposure to the plaintiffs? Yes. Yes. Just, okay. Yes. I'm, I, my first exposure is when they arrive and I hand them a cup of coffee. Right. <laughs> so I, I, I introduce myself then. Um, they know who I am, make them comfortable, and then we all get in the same room and I thank them again for being there. Exactly. Because they've agreed to, the, to do that. Yeah. They've right. agreed to be there. Um, they've agreed to try mediation so it's our job then Absolutely. to get them to the agreement that they came here for or came there for so, let's talk about then before just a step before that um the written submissions mm-hmm. i know i'm gonna i'm gonna just assume they're important very important <laughs> very important Crucial. so once you've dig- digested both sides it, can you candidly say are you pers- is it a persuasion thing or what are you what are you are you trying to pick no. out stuff what are you what uh, are you doing with that i'm using that as a reference manual so I've always said, for instance, that rather than just getting a mediation memorandum, which is fine, I'd like to have all of the raw material that they used in getting to that. So if we're talking about interrogatories, depositions, anything, 
I ultimately want to know that I know more about the case than either side does when they walk into the room. So exhaustive materials for me are better. Uh, basically, just the mediation statement is the conclusion of the pretty things that they want me to see. There's a difference. So sometimes if I have everything there, I may be able to have learned ahead of time of the warts in each side's case. Mm. And I think that's important. I want to know what each attorney wants me to know. Yeah. yeah. Um, whatever form they they give me, I do like to have all the medical records, for example, because I will read yep. them all. And I will be able to, as you probably are, and become an expert in the case, yeah. as I said, and I can, I can cite page number and line yep. number where somebody said something exactly. that is not adding up to a, con a conference that's going on privately. So it's good to have all that information. The more information, the better, but don't give me, you know, every deposition transcript you ever had if it's not going to be relevant right. because I will read every deposition right. transcript and you're going to pay you're for that. Yeah. And don't give don't give them to me online. Yeah. And don't send them to me as a big file because well, because, because you have to download right. and print it out. Because there's that technology of our printers often jam up mm -hmm. when you're sending them five hundred pages of PDFs. Ugh. And that's important I think to know is that before you're meeting in a case you have to know your mediator and what they like right, exactly. because you want to hand them information as easily as possible well, i tell them right up front yeah. do not send any large <laughs> files or multiple files electronically we, we also have yeah. that in our letter of instructions yeah good. so let me throw a hypothetical at you that is so defense oriented um that it's going to be ridiculous but you get a fact you get a, you're about to mediate a case that you see all the written, written submissions and you see the plaintiff has zero case like their case is just so bad but the defense is really good Mm. Do you go in those type of cases different than you go into cases where there's more you can see both sides? No. no What's the can't. thought process? No. Well, because they're there for a reason. Yeah. They want you to help them resolve the case for whatever reason that is. And yeah, the plaintiff may have a great case and defense has nothing or right. vice versa, but because they're there, they want you to do your well, job and they, find whatever it is that can get the, uh, the, the resolution. They, they've each agreed to mediate the case because they each have reasons, not all of which may be obvious to the other side. And so whether the case's merit is wonderful or not wonderful is not really relevant until you reach the point of trying to address issues of reality with the individual parties privately. That's a different story. So that if you see things that say that this aspect is significant on behalf of the defense, you may want to say that privately to plaintiff's attorney. Or if you need to have that conversation of reality with the plaintiff or the individual defendant to say, I've looked at things and some of this is what I am concerned that you may face in a jury trial. That's part of the reason of us being here today too. So that by explaining it in that fashion, you can turn what could have been a negative into a positive. But to go into the mediation with any preconceived notions, I think is dangerous for the mediator. What basically it's doing is that the mediator then is coming into the room essentially with their eyes closed and their ears closed. Yeah. And how can you be neutral if you're doing that? Yeah. And I think that's a great point. I mean, you know, I think we often as lawyers want you to come in and take our side. Right. <laughs> and yeah. we know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, Our job is not to be your advocate. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's one thing that we have to highlight um, yeah. here is that there are two different, or many different roles going on right. in the mediation yeah. room. If, we're, we're just unique. Yeah. if we don't stay neutral, they're right. not going to trust us. Absolutely. 
So let me let me switch gears a little bit. What, if anything, can the actual client, whether it's an adjuster, a claims adjuster, VP of claims, risk manager, whoever it may be, not the lawyer, but our clients, what can they do um, to make a mediation more effective? Uh, be prepared. Uh, be prepared. What does that mean? That means know the file inside and out. Um, the most effective yeah. um, claims adjusters and their attorneys are, are those who know um, where all the bodies are buried, Absolutely. and 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 the, the strengths and weaknesses of yeah. the, of their position, they're not going to tell you their their weaknesses, no. but they're going to tell you all your Good. all their strengths. Right. And the 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 only other thing I think that could make them more productive, I think, was one of the questions that you provided us, is that they whoever has the authority right. has to be available Absolutely. the entire time. I don't want to hear That's well right. the person I I wanted to call is like going to lunch. And, yeah. No, and I'm I'm going to go a step no. further with that. I think that it is an imperative for the attorney representing the defense to have the cell phone numbers of the adjuster, the supervisor, and the manager. Because in this day and age, particularly, where many adjusters work remotely, they work from home or whatever, the last thing we want is to have 10 people in a room and be told, oh, gee, the adjuster took the afternoon off, or this is she's working from home today. There needs to be a way of me being able to reach and the attorney being able to reach that person. So office number, yes, but cell phone number as well. Uh, I once had one adjuster that worked from home and happened to have a dairy farm. And during the course of the mediation, (laughs) she was often not available because she was out milking the cows. (laughs) I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it happened. So with the cell phone, I could be sure I could reach them. And the last thing I want with that is to have especially, and I know that we all experience this, the Friday afternoon in the summer mediation. Hmm. And all of a sudden, 11.30 in the morning, it's not even one o'clock yet, you need to reach the adjuster. Oh, they're gone for the weekend. (laughs) Well, they knew where they were going to be beforehand. They set this up. They're going to be paying the bill. Do you see that a lot? Adjusters not being... I don't see that a lot. Uh, I I do, but but I have to differ with you just a bit because a lot of times that's a ploy. Yes, and I do not want to take away the autonomy of the adjuster and and his her relationship with the attorney by saying you will give me the telephone numbers to reach the higher up. Um, I think I understand that. I think I think um, the adjuster in the room needs to have that communication strong. But at the same time, I don't want to hear, well, she went to lunch or I can't reach her. I think well, it's important that that person always be available. Right, and I, right, again, yeah. I say that up front in right. my, my instructions. Right. In the letter, engaging yeah. letter, you yeah. have to be available the entire duration of the mediation. And if that doesn't happen, I suspect it's for another reason. Well, I, I think that it is. I think that the reason may be less than the innocuous, I, I'm taking care of my kids or whatever. But yes. I think that I prefer to adopt a mindset that is rather than being suspicious of the adjuster's communication, that saying they are working independently, privately, I accept that, I'm going to allow that, but the quid pro quo is that I ha- we have your phone number so that I can reach you, so we're not facing that situation. Because then what happens is you have everybody gathered in a room, a clock is running, people are paying money for that, and you reach a critical juncture, and you can't reach someone, and now you have the other side feeling that 
they're being taken advantage of. You risk them all of a sudden having a negative mindset about the whole cooperative mm-hmm. process. Well, you can use that time too. Yeah, you, you can. can. You know, you can. get to know the you know, the, the parties, right. and yep. I mean, you, there's always an opportunity to keep engaged. Oh, absolutely, there engaging. Is. Yeah. And like, I I have a hard time being heavy-handed with give me the telephone number. <laughs> I know I, I appreciate your approach, yeah. and that may be because you're you're judge yeah judge can get away with that judge <laughs> but, now but, that may be just I, that that's true. edge that you guys I, have i don't have i never or, do it heavy-handed i do it i'm not saying you know no was, no no i do it I gently just, but but someone once told me yes that there is the power of the hun h-o-n and i had to laugh about mm. that uh and and i think that he's right i use it judiciously i basically never introduce myself on the phone as this is judge snyder uh, I will understand that the attorney will say I'm going to put Judge Snyder on the phone, but I'll say, hi, this is Mike Snyder, because what I'm consciously doing then is removing myself from that exalted level that may be the thought by using the title. Uh, well, you, uh, judges are former judges, retired judges who yeah, are now practicing. Yeah. You have that esteem. You can't can't lose it. You right, can use right, it, right, right. Which, exactly. which is what I think no, you're, you, right. you're doing. You're right. And and attorneys appreciate it because sometimes they need a, a judge right. yeah. for their important clients. We have to act sometimes that. as either Absolutely. the Dutch uncle or the reality yeah. figure. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let me ask you how just to wrap up this topic. Yeah. How what do you think of claims adjusters talking during the opening session? No, no. Only no. if she's going to tag along right. with what the attorney just said in that well-placed, yeah. credible, Apology. and sincere yeah. uh, to say, "Yeah, we're Absolutely. here. We're here to get Absolutely. this done, yeah. and, and I'm doing. I'll do everything." Yeah. I and can. I would tell you, the one yeah. of my clients that does that, he he approaches his statements from an empathetic yeah. way, where he's only there to say, "Look, I'm here to listen to you. Right. I'm here to hear what you have to say. I hope that you can hear what we have to say." We apologize for what you've experienced, um, and we're here in good faith. And I, that's and I, good. as long I, as it's believable, it's I, not. he actually yes. is. Yes, he actually good. is pretty that's empathetic. Perfect. So that does help. It, it does come across. That helps dramatically. I agree. Because all of a sudden, you see the body language of the plaintiff relax to hear somebody that is actually with the entity that occasioned their harm, mm-hmm. not caused their harm, but occasioned their harm, to say, we're sorry you're here. We're sorry you're experiencing this. Exactly. And, and all of a sudden, I mean, you can literally see shoulders relax. Yep. Yep. You can see the arms that are crossed come uncrossed. And it's just an amazing transformation when yes. it's done effectively yes. and with sincerity. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, what, let's, let's talk about this. How often does something come up in mediation that drastically changes the course of mediation? Those gotcha Almost all facts. The time. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Does it? Well, yeah. it used to be more, yeah. um, more ready. Yeah. The, it used to be more obvious yeah. because um, social media and right. you know, the, the video surveillance. I mean, yes. those so. are those are helpful, you know. Um, on so yeah, the, it used to be more apparent. Um, and I'm talking about but, where, where a defendant comes in and goes, I got no liability, zero, and then by the end they're tendering their million. Like well, that, that drastic. That, that, it happens. That does yeah. happen yeah. because there's a fact that right. they weren't aware of. Um, or they chose not to be aware. Yeah. yeah. One of the, one of the, I just, when thinking about that question, one of the most recent recent case I had, and it worked the, the reverse. The, the plaintiffs were, it's a multi, there was a multi-million dollar demand. Mm-hmm. Catastrophic injuries for this young man, a dram shop and uh, uh, traumatic brain injury. Um, they they presented to the whole the whole party. I mean, the uh, opposing counsel and his and his uh, claims representative the day in the life. But yeah. he didn't come to the mediation. 
who came were his two sisters who were there to be yeah. his surrogate and also yeah. take care of him going mm -hmm. forward in his life. And uh, so it was a huge defense case. I mean, great liability defense. And uh, so a multi-million dollar demand, 10,000 or 100,000, excuse me, $100,000 offer. And that was, it wasn't going anywhere. So I told the plaintiff, get your client in here. I don't know. I don't know what he's going to say or do, but get him in here because something has to change. He, they went and got the client. He came in. He was the sweetest, most lovable yeah. individual. Yeah. He made you want to cry because mm -hmm. the brain injury only made him a happy guy. Right. Yeah. So he, he just he, he you could you just wanted to throw money at yeah. this guy, and that's what happened. The case settled because it was that dramatic a change. And um, and they learned through that that this, the daughters or sisters were not there as money grabbers. They were really there yes. to sincerely take care yeah. of their brother um, in the rest, for the rest of his life. And that made a huge difference. And I, I had one like that years ago that, that I thought was amazing. The story was tragic. Uh, it was a guy who was a jockey. And uh, he was out exercising the horses in the morning. And it had rained the night before. The ground was muddy. Uh, as the horse mm -hmm. is galloping uh, down the course, uh, the guy is thrown from the saddle, uh, except that one foot stays in the stirrup. Oh, the horse is now galloping right. at full tilt, and the man's face is down and being dragged into the mud. And by the time they got the horse to stop, mud had impacted both the man's mouth and nose. Uh, he was rushed to hospital. He ultimately had traumatic brain injury and was in a traumatic brain injury facility. After a period of time, his wife asked for him to be able to come home on weekends so at least she could be with him and he could maybe be around those who loved him. And the facility allowed it. The insurance carrier was paying for this, but ultimately the facility said, well, if he's going to be home like that. Uh, here's what the bill is going to be. And if you're not going to be paying this bill, he's getting kicked out. And what the wife was saying was, as I have him home, I see that he is responding better because he's not on all the medication. And he was around those who loved him. And ultimately, the case came down to the wife was asking rather than for enormous sums of money. She was working three jobs in order to be able to support the family. And the husband came in, and by this time now, he was able to communicate. He was able to read. He couldn't do a lot beyond it, but he took pleasure in reading and seeing his family. And what his wife wanted was to just be able to be given money as a caregiver so she could stay home instead of working the three jobs and care for him. The ultimate savings, by the way, to the carrier was probably in the neighborhood of two or three million dollars a year. I bet. Wow. It yeah. was a huge amount. Yeah. And ultimately, as everybody in the room heard the man and the wife talking, you could see tears forming in the mm. eyes of the defense attorney and of the adjuster. Mm. And they came to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just the right thing to do from a point of view of dollars and cents. It was the right thing to do from a humanitarian exactly. viewpoint. And when they agreed to be able to do this for the wife, and it was dramatically less money than the family would have been entitled to otherwise, 
she had tears in her eyes. Wow, that's uh, great. The, 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 the husband had tears in his eyes. It was one yeah. of the most empowering moments I've ever seen. Yeah. And I think situations like that are great for our clients because you can report what happened at a plaintiff's yeah. step. Yeah. You can yeah. say they're credible, they're likable, they're super right. sincere, but until you see it, the impact isn't quite that. Absolutely. So let me, let me see if we can quantify this, and maybe you can't. I have a hard time believing that you walk into a mediation without knowing all of the facts, right? I, and even including to some degree a sympathetic plaintiff right, right, or, or right. maybe a defendant. So I'm like, how can you walk into a mediation and discover a fact that changes everything? How often, you say one out of, out of 100 mediations, how often do you think one drastically changes course? Are you able to quantify that? No. Is it no, rare? No. Yeah, it's rare. Yeah. It's rare. Maybe yeah. 1%, I don't know. I think it depends on the type of case, mm -hmm. uh, it, it depends, you're right, on how much humanity comes in. Uh, do you find yourself automatically falling in love with the plaintiff or automatically falling in greater dislike of the plaintiff? Uh, and that happens occasionally too. Uh, I think that it is, it is rarer, thankfully. Uh, when it does happen, it's remarkable. And there's that sense of this is how mediation can be transformative. And that's the ultimate goal of mediation, is that as a process, it's a transformative process. It's the only dispute resolution process that allows for closure. And that's what I've always said is the big difference. A jury trial provides a decision. It doesn't provide closure. An arbitration provides a decision, doesn't provide closure. But when you have the parties there, and you have them making those decisions, that's what provides closure. And all of us, I think, are happier with closure. That's the difference between that idea of somebody telling you what to do and you making that decision. You're empowered and you feel better about it. Well said. Well, let's talk Thank about, uh, yes, well said. Let's talk about uh, defense counsel. What would you tell them to stop doing? I and mean, we talked about opening statements. S Aside from that, uh, what would you tell them to stop, stop. doing? My, my favorite, stop ever saying to the mediator, I treat every case as if the money was my own. <laughs> you get that a lot? I have <laughs> I've never said that. Thankfully, thankfully not that a lot. But I have heard it happen enough times and I cringe each time. <laughs> I and would I, too. I say to the attorney privately afterwards and that's why you're having that problem. Mm. Uh, Those guys yeah. must have a lot more money than I do. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly, that's right. But. I my my pet peeve is we we only evaluate this case as nuisance value. Yes. So why are oh, you absolutely. here? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I've said that. I'm guilty. Yeah. I'm guilty. I'll raise my yeah. hand yeah. on that. That's that, that, stop using that. It takes that. an extra hour to <laughs> get beyond that comment. I you know? agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any other pet peeves you have that you can tell us yes. to stop doing? Stop yeah. arguing to the mediator as if you're talking to your jury. You know, absolutely. We we already you've already you've already said that. Right. We well, don't need to say it again. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think it's a trust, not a trust issue. I don't know a better way yeah. to say it, but it's a habit. It's a yes. habit, and yeah. it's the advocacy right. that's yes, built absolutely. into us. It's a habit. And, and we we want to we don't know if you understand our position, so we uh, want to doubly and triply sure well, that if we you say do. Yeah. I I understand your yeah, position, I right. and right. I saw that right. in the records. I you know, right. I can't disagree with you. Right, right, but right. let's let's move on. Yeah. Uh, I think the other thing that that I see sometimes with some defense counsel, uh, and it may be generational, is an attitude of seeing a younger attorney on the plaintiff's side and coming in with either a paternalistic or a condescending view. Interesting. Doesn't do any really? good. Really? You? With you? 
I, a, I, a paternalistic not to me approach? Oh. not to me but in oh. other words to the plaintiff's attorney so in other words oh. let's say you have defense counsel who is experienced let's say with the degree of gray hair that I have whether natural or otherwise and then a younger plaintiff's attorney oh. and the attitude then is no not ever toward me okay but I'm saying toward opposing counsel gotcha whether it's plaintiff or defense and I think that that is a horrible negative yeah it's condescending you're right yeah yeah. Well, let's flip that question then. If you could think about the top five, ten defense counsel that have been in front of you, the best ones that you've seen in mediation, what are those? What are those characteristics? Do they stand out? Empathy. They listen. They're respectful. They come in without the attitude that this is a trial. They come in understanding the difference, and they embrace the difference. Defense counsel who sees the party, the other, other person, as a human being mm -hmm. and is willing to um, go beyond the algorithm that uh, that uh, mm -hmm. uh, insurance companies like to deal with. When you have to realize an algorithm is just an opinion based in math. Exactly. The, the, we all know I, how bad lawyers yeah, are in math. We, uh, we need Guilty. The, the, <laughs> so yeah, bad. the defense, I, I agree with all the things Judge just said, but in addition, if the defense attorney and, and his adjuster can see beyond um, the, you know, the the things in the in the in the file, and look at the humanity because there are a lot of reasons why a case will settle and it has nothing to do with the actual injuries are. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about negatives. Are there any negatives to going to mediation? Yes. There's a ton of yes. positive. Yes. What are yes. the negatives? Okay. I'll, I'll, you start. I'll thank you. I'll start okay. with this one because I think this is probably something you're going to say anyway. Is that and the attorneys who one side or the other is going to use the process for discovery? Absolutely. And then we have to we have to sniff those out right away because mm -hmm. that's that's a that's that uh, is a, an offense to the process and it's also Super dangerous expensive too danger yeah. yeah well the, it's not if they not find no. oh, what what's what are they going to pay or right. what will they accept or or the, what are the hidden facts Absolutely, that are going to yeah. be harm, harmful going forward but it it for us to we, we have to be careful as mediators we have to make sure that's not going to happen in fact i say that in part of my opening comments if i if i sense it is happening i'll stop the mediation because that's harmful to the process Absolutely. that's harmful to their litigation yep. if they have to go forward so that's the one thing i i i i, I you know i'm cognizant of yeah. but you any I'm, negatives that beyond that i think the other negative is if you sense that one side really isn't interested in resolving the case. What they're interested in is having a soapbox. They're interested in using this, if not, for discovery uh, as a way of establishing the idea that no matter what, they will be victorious. They're only doing this because someone told them to do so, and they fully intend to litigate the case through every way. Well, let's talk um, timing. Timing. Is there a good, bad time? Is there ever a bad time to mediate? Sometimes we want to mediate cases early and we're reluctant because we're not sure we have everything that we need. Is there ever that situation? I think it varies. I mean, every case is different. Some cases work well with early mediation. I know that each of us, I'm sure, have had many cases we've mediated pre-litigation. You mediate at that point, you have to respect that the parties have decided for whatever reason to do so we're not always going to know those reasons. So if the two of them, or three or four, however yep. many parties there are, decide that mediation is appropriate, then that's the right time. 
There's no downside to it. No. If you agree to go no. before litigation and yeah. you realize, oh, well, we need that one expert report, right. then you reconvene. You do that. You reconvene. do that and you get together again or exactly. you just all resolved over a phone call. Correct. Absolutely. So there's absolutely yeah. no downside to it. No. What about um, producing things early on for purposes of mediation that you normally wouldn't produce? So we struggle with this sometimes yeah. that maybe we're in the discovery phase and we have some preliminary expert reports or opinions, but we think they would be helpful well, but they're not due yet. Give them we, to the mediator confidentially. Okay. Yeah, and, and let her or him yeah, deal with exactly. that. Exactly. Okay. Let them decide whether or not they want to encourage you to release it. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What about mediation statements? Do you require or, or do you think it's better to have them confidential or? It depends on what you want in there. Yes. You can exchange them if you want. It's kind of pointless because right. it's redundant because the other right. sides exactly. aren't going to know your case. Right. Right. But if there's something in there that you just want the mediator to know and then well-placed exactly you know let it out and then we, it's confidential and what we may say is normally your mediation statement is confidential if you want to submit an additional portion of a mediation statement that you would like us to transmit or you want to transmit to opposing counsel by all means do so but but understand what our normal process is I, I like that. I like the actual dual submissions. Yeah. One that we can be completely honest with you right. about what we are, what we think are problematic in our case, um, and why, how we think we're gonna fix that. I haven't seen you that. That's a good idea. Um, yeah. And yeah. then the general good. one. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's helpful. Yeah. yeah. Because normally I just yeah. see confidential mediation. Yeah. Blah. Yeah. Um, and so I don't say anything until I say to the whoever submitted it. Yeah. What can I? What What yeah. am I allowed to disclose in this document? Yeah, you know, yeah. what part is really confidential or not? Because there's sometimes that I actually want the opposing side to see, like seventy percent of it, but the thirty percent, I'm like, how do we do that? Or, or even if the part that they're seeing is basically the bullet points. So just to refresh everybody's memory, and essentially they're saying it to the mediator, but they're saying it to the other yeah. side, here are the main injuries. Yeah. Here are certain things that are not confidential issues. Let's have that as our basic mm. fact scenario to work from. A follow-up though, um, attorney who sent his mediation memo to the other side, but the other side didn't send to him um, because it was confidential, mm. is very effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we didn't For exchange the person it. who sends it. We didn't yeah. exchange right. it because, and I can say, well, he yeah. sent me a confidential mem memorandum. Yeah. And they're like, What's in it? Right, that's <laughs> you right. know, I shared mine with you, right. but you're not going to share yours that's with right. me. So that's very, but very at the same time, effective. It gets the other effect: the one who disclosed everything comes in. I'm good. Mm -hmm. I gave it all. I'm not holding stuff back. Yeah. And he's being dishonest. She's being dishonest. Well, well it could be. Uh, yeah. Could be. Yeah. And I say it from be. the defense side, we tend to, to talk to our opposing counsel before doing that because I've been in situations where I've gotten theirs. So I'm like, mm, right. we're not going to give you ours, and I feel bad reading it. Right. I feel like we should go with a level yeah. playing field. Yeah. But yeah, um, right, just a couple more questions. What's the most creative, out of the box resolution you've seen in your mediation uh, I, career? I, I Good, you got it. Okay, this this there's actually two. One of them is not my own, but it was one of my colleagues, and it just blew me away. It's, it's a story that began on the, on the river, on the, on the Schuylkill, right near Boathouse Row. And it was a young teacher who had taken her students, some of whom were, were there for on the crew team, going down the river, and she was their coach as well. And at some point in time, something happened where her boat, turned over Ooh. and her body was never found it went uh. down the waterfall uh. oh parents were of course devastated the 
The dad, I believe, was a doctor. And the lawsuit progressed against all of the uh, boathouses on Boathouse Row and the city. And it was devastating. And the parents didn't want money. No amount of money, of course, was going to bring their daughter back. And what they kept saying that they wanted was they wanted to make sure this didn't happen to someone else's child. And what my colleague ultimately did was say, well, how can we prevent that? What can we do? So has everybody driven down past Boathouse Row, oh, yeah. right near the waterfall? What yeah. is it that you notice as you go near the waterfall area? There's a, a trap there, isn't there, like a screen? There's a, a chain, a chain mm -hmm. curtain mm -hmm. with chains hanging down, yeah. and ropes hanging down. Yeah. That was put up as the result of this case. Really? They talked ultimately to engineers in the city, and the city agreed to pay to put this up. Yeah, and then there was also a boat safety program that was instituted at the universities and the high schools and the boathouses. So as a result, very, very little money changed hands with the plaintiff's family. They felt at the end that their interests had been addressed and it did something that changed things, not just for them, but for an entire community. I thought that that was an amazingly powerful out-of-the-box solution. That's amazing. And I, I drive by that thing all the time, yeah. and I just yeah. thought it had yeah. to do with the races. Like, maybe it was like yeah. a starting line. I don't no. know what it was. Yeah. It, it is a truly tragic story and how a tragic story right. ended being good. The other one that was my personal experience of an out-of-the-box ex experience, woman also was a teacher. She had been working in a uh, facility uh, mainly for developmentally challenged children and one day one of the children attacked her and she had some significant injuries as the result of those injuries she was put on different types of pain medication which ultimately caused this young woman to become addicted to opioids and mm -hmm. the first time I had the mediation with the woman she came in and it was very obvious the handicap that she was operating under the opioids had so destroyed her system that because one narcotic or opioid after another was being tried, she ultimately, by the way, was using a form of narcotic pain medication called Actique, uh, which are these lollipops that have the pain medication in it. And she was using so many of them that the sugar was causing her teeth to fall out. So now a young woman came in almost her whole mouth of teeth was gone. Mm. She could barely function in any way. And the question was, what can be done to ultimately get this young woman back to functioning? And through investigation, I discovered that there was a facility at Johns Hopkins University, which was a comprehensive inpatient pain management program multi-disciplinary uh, that had a tremendous success rate of reducing or eliminating the need for narcotic or opioid medication in a number of people. And we approached the, the plaintiff and her attorney with it, and her attorney was really embracing of the idea. The plaintiff at that point couldn't initially understand that her life could change. And we adjourned, but a couple years later, the attorney called me and said, I think my client is in a better place now. She came in again. We talked about it. And she said she would be willing to do it. And the insurance carrier agreed to pay for this. Very, very, very expensive program. 
I had the pleasure, first of all, of seeing the adjuster again a couple years later. We spoke at a seminar. She told me that it was one of her most gratifying successes, one of the company's most gratifying successes, and that when they had reached out to the woman, she was back teaching. She had put her life back on track. That's a great story. I love that. Yeah. I can't top either one. (laughs) Just let him have that one. Well, I love that. And I think, you know, it doesn't happen a lot. Mediations are 99% about money, but there's that one or 2% Mm -hmm. that if you can get creative, uh, you really do give closure. And Mm -hmm. those are great stories. Um, I want to say just one comment, and then I want to throw this question to you. And this really is about what you think um, defines a good mediator. And I, I, I say one benefit that I personally get from mediation is when I'm in an individual room with the mediator and they're telling me the weaknesses of my case. Because I don't always see it. Sometimes you're too close that somebody goes, you haven't thought of this or what about that? And I've had those aha moments where I'm like, damn, she's right. Like, you know, and I didn't even think about that and it's super helpful, especially if that mediation is early. What do you think defines a good mediator? I'll throw this to you, Barbara. Well, um, first of all, you have to be likable. They have to like you. Because if they like you, they trust you. Absolutely. And uh, of course, be prepared. If you know the case like an expert, then you then defense attorneys and adjusters yeah. will appreciate your your assessment. Um, be optimistic. Mm-hmm. And you have to go in. Yeah. We're here to get here today. We're going to settle this. And if if I'm optimistic, they're going to buy into that. They're going to feel yeah. okay. And and I also tell them my success rate. Cause I yeah. want them to not mess Absolutely. up my success rate. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm competitive. And if they're if, exactly <laughs> with myself. If, yeah, with myself, right? And I'm also tenacious. So if yeah. they are going to, um, we we're all doing this together. Keep mm-hmm. them engaged, and be considerate, and also be um, genuine. Because yeah. people can smell, you know, if you're not right. in, if you're not sincere. Absolutely. And, and that's part of being likable, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and everybody knows. One of the greatest success of a plaintiff's case is whether the plaintiff is likable. Absolutely. Yeah. And if they're not, yeah. which is something I yeah. can point out, yeah. because if they yeah. think I'm likable, I'm going to say, your client's not likable. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, yeah. it's very helpful. So the likability, commitment, um, optimism, um, being prepared and being an expert, you know, having all those other skills right. that mediators have to have, yeah. that's what I think. What about you, Judge? Uh, number one, being able to listen actively rather than being the one that's sitting there with the blank face. That listening actively is tremendously important. Empathy, uh, like ability, of course. Having an ability to get to know the individuals aside from the issue. So that before I start talking about the issue at hand, I'll always engage in small talk with people. Talk about children. Uh, I'll start with maybe an anecdote or something like that. Ask people about vacation. Find something to attract common ground in questioning and conversation. Because if I can do that with someone that I have never met before, as in a plaintiff or a defendant, all of a sudden they're going to understand they may be able to find a way of they and I talking. Mm -hmm. and they and I coming to some solutions that help. Mm -hmm. So that to me is key, is relaxing them. So it's not just the likability, it's relaxing them. It's speaking a language that they can understand. Mm -hmm. I always make it clear to a plaintiff or a defendant that when I speak to them directly, we're not going to be speaking lawyer talk. Mm -hmm. We're going to be speaking like human beings Mm -hmm. because that's the whole goal of it. And The other thing I think that for me is important, and and I tell them this, is that if I have done my job well, when people walk down the hall 
and hopefully everybody's shaken hands with one another, they've resolved the case, and that the parties turn around to their attorneys and they say, well, that was really great. What did Snyder do? And I, that's really what I think really defines a good mediator, the ability to be transparent so that your effect is not something they can quantify, but they understand that it worked and that it was valuable. The attorneys understand what you did, but I think that's what is key to it. I, and I'll add too, and I think both of you have this persistence, not giving up. I've seen some mediators that there's that first bump in the road, that first brick wall, and then oh, you yeah. stop. But to continue to, to figure out creative ways around roadblocks, I think is persistence is what I, what I think it's, is key If it was too. easy, they wouldn't have needed yeah, exactly, exactly. 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 Well, that, yeah, I love that you guys came on. Maybe we'll have to. We could probably talk for another we could. Uh, probably, probably two hours. Yeah. Um, but I appreciate you coming on. Great insight. I think uh, it certainly helps the defense bar, maybe even the plaintiff's bar, uh, and our clients. I think this is a tremendous service yeah. so, you're yeah. doing. So, and, and I think that for me, I can say this, and I suspect for Barbara as well. We're doing this because we really love it. We do. It, we get great do. joy, great satisfaction out of doing this. You're yeah. you're part. You're like the anomaly in the legal profession where you're actually. You know, the end game for you is a amicable resolution. You like you make people feel good. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> so, it's the best it, job in the world. Absolutely, it's, it's the right. best job. That's in right. right. Well, thanks, guy. I appreciate that. Thank Maybe you. you'll have to. We'll have to do another episode with with other questions. It would be a pleasure. Well, Happy. until next time on the Defense Never Rest. We'll see you then.